Welcome to Episode 7 of A Prescription for Fair Drug Prices, a podcast by ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. My name is Jason Crowell, and I'm your host, and I'm joined by Steve Pearson, President of ICER. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing some of the other benefits a drug can provide when determining its value and initial price, as well as why context matters when we think about the fair price for a drug. Hey, Steve, welcome back. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks, Jason. All right. So I've still got my suit of armor on from our last episode. We spent the last episode discussing our theme that we should price the value. That is the fair price of a drug is the price that rewards the drug's value. And in the last episode, we took a detailed look at how a drug's total benefit for patients can be determined, including the data that factors into that decision. And you briefly mentioned at the end that the context of a drug will also somehow play into determining a drug's benefit. And so today we're going to talk about some of these contextual considerations. So before we go any further, can you expound a little bit on what you mean by potential other benefits or context? I I guess I'm a little confused because we talked last week about all this cost effectiveness analysis, and it seems pretty black and white that I can take out a calculator and calculate the benefit and calculate the cost and plug them into my formula and see whether a drug is cost effective or not. So why would the context matter in this situation? Well, the short answer is because you can't put everything into a number. Um, and you know, even people who love cost effectiveness analysis as a way to stimulate the kind of thinking about value um, recognize that it doesn't do a lot of important things. Does cost effectiveness by itself tell us whether we care more about um, treating conditions that are really, really severe as opposed to those that aren't? No. Does cost effectiveness by itself tell us how much uh, we want to spend on people in the last year of life versus people who are five to 10 years old? No. Does cost effectiveness by itself tell us how much we should consider whether people are working and healthy if they're treated and can contribute to taxes and the economy as opposed to being people who are on social security? No. So there's these these huge ethical, some people say social value kinds of questions. And that's why I asked you to keep your suit of armor on because this is where every country has both an opportunity and a challenge. How do you bring these issues into consideration and make people feel like you're doing it in a fair way? It's really tough, but it's really important because what really does matter to patients and their families isn't always something that they can point their finger to in the quality. And we just have to be open about that and try to figure out how to integrate some of these other considerations into the deliberative process and into the ultimate decision around what a fair price would be. So as an example of this, I know that there was a recent gene therapy treatment that came out for children with blindness. And I guess two questions about that. It seems like A, blindness might be a tough one to capture with a quality and B, would the fact that this is a disease that affects children be one of the potential benefits that you're talking about? Um, Yes. So let's talk about that. It's It's a good example. So there was very recently, actually, the first true gene therapy introduced in the United States was a gene therapy for a rare inherited form of childhood blindness. Um, The kids become usually fully blind over their adolescence um, and and are are blind uh, by the time they're in their 20s. 
and there was a new gene therapy, a one-time treatment. So, and there had never been any treatment for this before. So let's start with the quality, because we say, great, we're probably gonna say this is worth a lot of money, because um, it sounds great, right? The whole idea, we're gonna create a lot of new health, there are no other treatment options. So the quality is gonna measure the impact on health, how long you live and on your quality of life. And then you start to realize, wow, um, people who become blind have the same lifespan as others. So we're not gonna gain anything in terms of value by extending life. And wow, people who become blind are, are very functional in our society. Um, we, uh, we have great programs and support them in their employment. They have families, they take vacations, they jump out of airplanes. Um, and, and actually the, the, the patient community really doesn't want um, folks to think of people who are blind as somehow suffering and having kind of terrible lives. So you start to say, well, wait a second. So what is the benefit of keeping someone from going blind, from becoming blind? And so you really have to think about uh, kind of the effects on quality of life in this interesting way where it does create quality to maintain your sight, but we're not saying that people who are blind um, are somehow devalued themselves as individuals. Um, so that, that's part of the challenge. The quality itself, when you look at a treatment for blindness, it does improve quality of life, um, um, but it doesn't extend life. And so you may not get that big of a bump. But then people start to say, well, now wait a second. There are potential other benefits. And this is where this term comes into play. And they're outside the health system. What about um, education? What about, what about employment? Don't people who uh, maintain their site, can't they have, you know, get jobs that pay them more? Don't they um, ultimately kind of produce more on average in terms of taxes and other things? Yes. And educationally, actually, it costs a lot more to the, for the system to create the tools um, to um, educate people who have blindness. And then you've got more subtle things that are, are again, part of the quality, um, but it's hard to know whether they're fully captured. Um, you know, you listen to testimony about kids who, because they can see, they can ride their bike home from school and feel more independent. And parents can have different experiences and travel um, themselves and the kids can be left by themselves more often. And so there are a lot of these things even outside, you know, in the family and even in the community, perhaps, where these other benefits accrue. Now, some of these you might be able to get actual data on. You could actually do surveys and try to measure, you know, family worker units and hours and those kinds of things. But that's really hard to do, certainly on a large scale, certainly for a rare disease. So we can talk about it we can realize that it's probably true, but we may have a really hard time putting a solid number on it. And then there are the contextual issues, which aren't even kind of considered potential other benefits, but contextual issues such as, this is the very first treatment ever for this condition. And when we have a treatment, what that stimulates is often better screening uh, to be able to treat the condition. It, it kind of revolutionizes the care structure, the infrastructure, and parents, stop having to be the one kind of repository of knowledge about this rare disease. Doctors learn about it more and it, it kind of really, it has this broader effect. So those are contextual issues that again, people want often to talk about as an important piece of value that the quality itself, which is good at what it does, but doesn't capture some of these, um, if you will, broader or kind of additional things. 
So we'll talk later probably about what you do with that. How do you, if you aren't gonna use it as a number, what do you do with it when you're trying to think about a fair price? But there are, that's the basic idea that we want to at least be aware and hopefully more transparent and consistent and considering these other benefits because sometimes they may actually not be in the round, in the wheelhouse of a payer. An insurer may not really feel like it's their job to worry about educational kind of benefits of a treatment. They may not really think it's my job to pay more for something that helps people work more. Um, you know, that's not maybe, maybe that they just don't view that as their job. But maybe we as a society want to send a signal that it should be part of the price because it's what society thinks on a broader scale should be considered as an important feature of value. Steve, addressing racism and racial disparities has really been one of the major headlines in our country this year. So is there a way to fit those ideas into kind of other contextual considerations when thinking about um, a drug's benefit? Absolutely. And again, here you can do it, you can try to do it both empirically and qualitatively. So um, many treatments, um, unfortunately, in our experience, um, when we bring this issue to our independent committees that we kind of convene to talk about these potential other benefits and contextual considerations, they will often raise the concern that a brand new treatment is often first uh, used, if you will, or first made available to people at higher kind of socioeconomic levels who are connected to academic centers. And it can actually, the introduction of new treatments can often increase disparities um, that already are pervasive throughout our healthcare system and our society. But we do sometimes have treatments that can reduce disparities. And the question is, again, do we want to add more value to their equation in some ways to think about what a fair price is? And this creates a really strange conundrum. So recently, for instance, we looked at treatments, new treatments for sickle cell disease. Now, there's an area where there had not been new treatments for 40 years, where the entire healthcare system was just not serving that community well for so many reasons. Patients being assumed that they were drug seeking um, because of the color of their skin, um, terrible access to specialty care across the United States, um, health insurance rules that seem to um, kind of just exclude sickle cell as a reasonable kind of uh, consideration when you might need this, tre this treatment or that test. It, it's just been awful on so many levels. And now income, several new treatments. And so people say, well, this will help, help reduce disparities because it will help improve the lives of patients with sickle cell. There's a terrible disparity there. Um, and it's something we want to, to pay attention to. Um, but does that mean that we, we want their drugs to be more expensive? Because ultimately, again, this is a drug maker's choice. And do we want to send a signal, hey, if you go after a treatment that uh, can help serve a, a vulnerable or a disadvantaged community, one that suffered racism, you get to charge higher because in a weird way, higher prices will only perhaps make it more difficult for these patients to get access um, through our insurance system. So it's a real strange, almost kind of, uh, kind of dilemma. But at the end of the day, we do want to have some system in which I think we talk more honestly about whether pricing should reflect a consideration around its impact on disparities, um, how to make sure that if, if we do that, we don't somehow send a perverse incentive to manufacturers to just jack up the price because, quote unquote, they can. 
Yeah, it makes sense to me, um, these different considerations that you've talked about, but I guess I'm still wondering how to be systematic about this and how to take these into consideration. Like, how do you weight something like a drug that serves an underserved community, for example? How are you objective about putting an emphasis on that? There are, it's a great question. There are, there are three kind of basic ways that people have talked about and tried to do this. One, honestly, is sadly to ignore it. Um, it's to just basically have decisions made in back rooms and um, whether they talk about cost effectiveness or not, just kind of make it again a negotiation. And if this comes up, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. And nobody knows. Um, and sadly, what I just said is basically the norm in the United States still to this day. So we don't know if insurers are taking this into consideration. We don't know if manufacturers are taking this into consideration when they price. Um, we know that the patient community. Um, is often calling out for more attention, more fairness, more access, more innovation, but no one knows if they're heard. So we've got that. Now, a second approach is to try to really make this as empirical and algorithmic as possible. So some researchers have tried to say, we're going to take 20 different potential ethical and other benefit kind of situations, kind of considerations and we're going to put a number on each of those um, and try to factor that in mathematically to the decision. Um, that's called multi-criteria decision analysis. Whoa. <laughs> terrible term. It's just a terrible term. It sounds like a, a rash, right? I just get that off. I don't me. want that. I don't want that. Keep your suit of armor on. <laughs> defend yourself. No, but seriously, the idea is, is valid. The idea is let's be, let's be consistent. Let's be transparent. Um, let's try to be fair by putting a number on things so that we treat it the same across different uh, types of drugs and, and situations. That, that all kind of makes sense. The problem is, is that these social and ethical issues are not mutually exclusive. So, for instance, a really severe disease often does equal a disease of children, does often equal the first time we have a treatment for that disease. So it all kind of connects sometimes. Um, and if you try to put numbers on it, Sometimes it just makes the, the water even muddier um, and people will be more confused about how we're making a decision. So a third way is to kind of split the difference and it's to say, hey, let's, let's get these issues on the table. Let's have a checklist even where we have to talk about them and be clear about what we're doing with them. And let's use cost effectiveness as a foundation. But again, maybe we use a range or you can think of it as a, as a slider almost on a cost effectiveness kind of um, uh, access. And you can say, you know, we might have some reasons that we think we have more value here than, than cost effectiveness captures. So let's just dial up the value-based price, if you will, a bit within a range. Um, and again, is that going to be perfectly consistent? Is it going to be um, fair to everybody in their, in their way of looking at it? Maybe not. But I think by being more consistent about talking about it, by again, kind of talking about how much we would add or not add or subtract. I think we get pretty far down the road to the consistency and transparency that we need. And we take these issues and we make sure that they're not just buried somewhere, um, if at all uh, discussed. And, and we bring them into the public domain where patients can have their voices heard, where insurers can be at the table, where manufacturers can hear it. I think that's been one of the things that's been really missing in the United States is a way to have this kind of conversation as difficult as it can be sometimes um, more transparently. So the simple answer, I think, 
towards approaches are one, two, or three. Bury it, make it mathematical, or something in the middle where we try to have the benefits of consistency without the straitjacket of a mathematical approach. Um, and in our experience, it's that third approach that is the best um, for making these issues tangible and have an impact on the thinking of insurers and others. Yeah, I can see how um, not burying them, but putting them on the table and shining a light on them and being transparent about it, why that would be important. Um, but I guess, and this isn't really a question, it's more of a comment that I, I guess I just, I think about this and I can imagine that this is an extremely debatable idea because it's easy to imagine other societies where, for example, a drug that presents a new mechanism of action or a drug that is um, going to help an underserved community or help children, maybe that would be more or less rewarded than say in our society. And I, I can just imagine there being a lot of debate about how much to reward or, or not reward different characteristics like that. You're right. And being with that insight, I think you would, you would be an excellent politician <laughs> because politicians recognize this. Uh, transparency sounds all good to people from the ethics community to patient groups, et cetera. Transparency sometimes or often is a double-edged sword to a politician. Muddling through without, you know, kind of real rationales being given is one way not to get strung up by people who think you've done it wrong. So, and, and, and what is right? There is no right here. It could be that some societies really, really, really want to give more um, resources to its elderly population or to its young, healthy working population. And they make a societal value judgment that they want to consider that a, a contextual issue to weight the pricing of things. Um, and, and you know, we as a society, we don't take very easily to the idea, first of all, that we have one view on these things as a country, right? We're not that together on a lot of different issues, much less some of these deeper ethical values. And two, um, again, for a politician or for a structure of care to kind of take this on can be somewhat threatening. But I still think it's the hard work that, that we need to do. Um, again, what we do at ICER is we start at that 100,000 per quality threshold that we talked about before, which is our best guess of a, kind of the ceiling price already that you can pay uh, without doing more harm than good. But we do create a range that goes up to 150,000 per quality. And, and in a sense, within that range of prices that we show, we hope that people will talk about these other potential benefits and contextual considerations and feel like that might be a reasonable range within which, again, to kind of push the needle up or down. You can go down below 100,000 too. I mean, there, there are some health systems, some reasons for which we would wanna spend less than that, especially if it's a huge patient population that needs treatment um, in a hurry, like during a pandemic. But you know, for steady state situations, presenting a range of pricing options um, is a good way to start to stimulate again the conversation that can then weave in these different considerations that can be so contentious. Some, uh, some food for thought there in our penultimate episode of this series. And uh, it looks like next week we finish up and solve all the world's problems with drug pricing. Steve, does that sound like a plan? It's about time. We've got all the tools and we'll bring them to bear, but uh, absolutely. So stay tuned and next week we will go over the tools that providers need to make a difference for their patients and in our society. Steve, I look forward to it. Thank you. Me too. Thanks, Jason. 
Hopefully by this point it is obvious that the problem of prescription drug pricing is big and complicated, but next week in the final episode of A Prescription for Fair Drug Prices, we'll show you what we as physicians can be doing right now to help fix this problem. We'll see you next week.